to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McCullough-Sounds, a fashion cultural historian. My guest this week is the illustrator and artist Emmanuel Shonga. As someone deeply enamored with illustration and a collector of old magazines, I always pay attention to the names of illustrators I come across in 50s, 60s, and 70s magazines. One illustration in a 1979 issue of Cosmetology particularly caught my eye, a watercolor of two women by Emmanuel Shonga, it was unlike the work of any other illustrators I know of from that era. The perfectly rendered forms and shadows in watercolor, the elegant pen lines, saturated colors. As I came to know Manny Shankat's work better, I found that there was a wide diversity of styles in his portfolio, something that he admits in this interview possibly hindered his career. From the traditional watercolors that found acclaim in children's books, to the highly conceptual book covers he designed in the 1960s, Shankat has painted it all. Manny was born in upstate New York in 1936. As we discussed, he studied and taught at Pratt before becoming a freelance illustrator. In the early 1970s, Manny was represented by Pushpin Studios, the legendary graphic design illustration firm founded by Milton Glaser and Seymour Schwast. His work appeared in New York Magazine, The New York Times, Vogue, Town & Country, Red Book, and many other publications. Manny talks very openly about the ups and downs of his career, the high points, and also where he feels he went off track along with the hardships of being a freelance artist. We also go through how he approached designing a book cover, illustrating a magazine article, or making a children's book. Over his career, Manny has illustrated more than 20 children's books, of which he has authored five. If you're interested in art, the publishing and media industries, and New York in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I think you'll really love this conversation. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so the more people can find their way to this podcast. Enjoy. Thank you for meeting with me today. Thank you for the invitation. I love your work and thank um, you so much. I collect old magazines, and so over the years, I've just come across your work here and then, you know, started to recognize it. I'd come across it in one magazine, and then, you know, a couple months later, find something in another magazine and realize it was also you. And then I looked up, you know, started researching your work and realized that you'd worked with Pushpin and done all these children's books. And then I found some of them. And so I just, yeah, wanted to chat to you about all of it. Well, whatever I can remember <laughs> to tell you, <laughs> I'd be glad to answer any questions or give you any information. Wonderful. Yeah, I always like to start at the beginning, you know, where, where did you grow up? What was your family like? Well, I grew up in the lower Catskill Mountains, the horse circuit, Monticello. I, my parents were immigrants. Uh, they had come from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which I guess is Poland. Uh, they met in the US. I had a sister who was 12 years older which I guess had some influence actually on my work because I had uh, a bunch of books from her elementary school, which were those Dick and Mary or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think those illustrations really stuck with me, those spots and full illustrations that were usually a black and white line or black line with a two color 
uh, overlay uh, sort of bluish and an orange, which would be overlaid to make a brown. So it would be a three color. And I think that always stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that, you know, growing up in the country, but it was only less than two hours from New York City. So we were able to go back and forth, uh, had relatives in New York City. So we would visit. Well, I guess my parents had a guest house, a tourist house. So there were people coming and going from all over. I, earlier when I was born, we were in a very small town, actually in the outskirts of the town. My parents had a farm and uh, also had summer people, part of the early tourist summer people who would come up uh, for the weekends or they would, uh, they would come up for the summer. Families would come up for the summer. The husbands would be in the city and they would join them for the weekends. Uh, then we moved to New York City for a shoot, short time three years, I believe, uh, and mostly because my sister was graduating from high school and uh, was also World War II. So we went through World War II or in New York City or most of it, and then moved back to the country, to Monticello, which was a bigger town. And that's where I went to elementary school and high school as I said before, we did often go to New York City, uh, either driving or by bus, which was took longer at that time than it did eventually. So that's about it. That's about my, my family life, I guess. Uh, uh, in addition to that, my, one of, uh, or some of the strong influences on my work, I think, was when I was about 10, my sister bought me some uh, books. One was Anderson's Fairy Tales, illustrated by Arthur Schick. And uh, the other one was uh, Arabian Nights, illustrated by Earl Goodenow, I think. It was also a Hans Brinker. Uh, but those illustrators, through my later childhood and uh, teenage years, and even when I began to work as, as an illustrator, uh, became, I, I, it may not be noticeable, but uh, I, I think they were strongly influential in the way I worked or the way I wanted to work. So that takes care of those years. Were you all already interested in being an artist as a child? Were you drawing? And I was, I did a lot of drawing. I did, uh, I loved coloring books. Uh, I don't know that I was, well, I guess once I, I was in school, I was introduced to more artists uh, in, in uh, junior and high school. Uh, I had a very good art teacher who introduced us to different ways of working and uh, the major artists that we should know of, uh, Michelangelo and 
Da Vinci. And so there was that background at that point. Uh, I was the class artist. <laughs> and I always knew that I wanted to do something in art. I had no idea what or what was available to me. Uh, I would get magazines. I had uh, uh, magazines that my sister had like Cosmopolitan. And so I was aware of uh, artists like Al Parker, John Whitcomb. And that was always fascinating to me that people could do that and get paid for it. And it would be available for other people to easily see. That gave me a sort of point of reference, although I still did not know how to use it. And uh, the guidance counselor at, in high school said, don't go into art, find some other way of earning a living. Art will not do it for you. <laughs> but uh, I didn't listen to him, I guess. And so w when it became time to uh, go to college or find someplace, I started looking for an art school. Pratt became uh, a goal because it was not that far away. I mean, it was in Brooklyn, but easy to get to New York. And uh, so I chose Pratt and I was accepted, which was good. <laughs> and the first year was, uh, I've forgotten what it's called, an introductory year where basic, basic kind of, and then the second year would be choosing a more uh, focus. direction, a more, you know, more direction. Mm -hmm. And the advice I had was forget about illustration, go into advertising. And so I did one semester of advertising and switched to graphic arts and illustration mid-year after one of the teachers said, always use a photograph. You won't be able to draw anyway. <sighs> this was after in the advertising department. Mm -hmm. And so that's what pushed me into moving to the graphic arts and illustration. I was just wondering if your parents were, um, if were they were supportive of you going into the art. They were extremely supportive. And in those years, I think an entire year of Pratt was like $500. It was $250 per semester for 1954. Mm -hmm. By the time I finished in 58, it was, I think, 500 a semester. Pratt was, I, I guess it was an introduction to life because I got to meet people who were mainly interested in art, or at least the ones I knew. Also, the people that I knew in advertising became important because later on, some of them became art directors who ended up hiring me. <laughs> but I, I think I, I had maybe three or four very good teachers or 
very influential teachers like Richard Lindner. And I don't know if that shows either, but his work was very important to me. And the way he taught was very important to me. Then there was John Grove. He was actually an art director at Esquire and an illustrator. And I think he had a column, which was an illustrated column. It's mostly linear, I think. He taught me a lot about watercolor. And uh, watercolor was something that I always had an affinity for, but his methods were layering. He was also someone who felt that, that drawing was very important, as did Richard Lindner. And another teacher was Richard Beauvais, who taught a figure drawing class. Actually, Richard Lindner did as well. But Beauvais became important because after I graduated, uh, I continued to go to one of his classes at the Art Student uh, League, one of his life drawing classes, uh, which he just had me sit in on. Also, well, this is getting ahead of the story. He was one of the ones who advised me to leave Pratt when I was assistant teaching there. <laughs> which I did after graduation in 1954. Uh, well, no, 54 was not a good year for work. And I think I had one job, very small job. And uh, I went back to Pratt for their first year of uh, MFA, Masters in graphic arts illustration, I can't even remember what it was called then, because it was a very new program. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was supposed to be a one-year program, which turned into two years because some of their classes were not officially graduate classes. So we had to do a second year to make up those classes, which was good for me because I did it as an independent study in graphic arts and I did etchings and uh, and in that year. And after that, I, I guess I finished that in 1961 and somehow, I don't even, I don't remember how, uh, was asked to be an assistant instructor for a class taught by Anthony Saris who was a really good working illustrator at that time. And he taught a class called, uh, it was a class that would, repertorial art, it was called. Yeah. And uh, if we met in school, it would be something like a jazz band or dance group. If we met outdoors, it would be Staten Island Ferry, Chinatown, or the Schaefer Brewery. And so it, it needed two people to sort of keep track. This was, I guess, 1961 or 62. So I took that job, actually learned more from those new students coming in in the 1960s than I think I had in the four or six years at Pratt because they were so free about what they were doing. Some of them were stoned. <laughs> they would say to me, 
oh, I just dropped some acid. So don't worry if I seem a little strange, <laughs> which didn't really appeal to me, but I, I, I was able to uh, sort of enjoy them. I remember Tony Saris once criticizing one of the students about what he had done with the piece he was working on. And he said, the student said to him, that's what I wanted to do, which was a revelation to me that anyone could say that or anyone could do that. But I, I had lifelong friends from those students, which was good. I guess I did that for six or seven years until the class changed where they no longer needed two people. And I could have gone on to another class as an assistant instructor. And this is where Richard Beauvais came in, who had been a student at Pratt and then come back and was teaching at Pratt and was still teaching at Pratt after 20 years. And he said to me, leave, leave while you can. I don't know how Pratt is now, but it tended to be extremely incestuous yeah. at hiring its students and keeping them on for many years. In fact, there were people that I went to school with who ended up teaching there for many, many years. Were you doing other jobs at the same time that you were assisting? I was not. Mm -hmm. I, well, actually I started the, teaching or being an assistant instructor gave me enough financial security to begin looking for other work. And I began doing work so that by the time the six or seven years went by, I was getting enough work, small bits of work, uh, but enough so that I knew that I could do it and I could do freelance work. Also, it was much cheaper to live in New York. I was living in an apartment in the East Village for uh, starting at $35 a month. And by the time I left, it was $45 a month wow. on East 7th Street, just around the corner from Cooper Union. <laughs> I think that building belongs to NYU now. I'm not really sure. So, you know, living in New York was easier. Also, it was easier to look for work. Yeah. You could call up an art director, you call up a magazine or a book publisher, and you might get to speak to an admin or a secretary at that time, or somebody answering the phone and say, I'm an illustrator, I'm looking for work, who would I see? And they would tell you, and you could make an appointment and see this person, uh, who would then give you an introduction to someone else, somewhere else. So I slowly began to get work. I, actually, the first jobs I had was, uh, were for uh, an art director for Macmillan, I guess it was, who had been one of my friends when I was in advertising. He was now the art director. And I did two mystery book jackets for him, for paperbacks. And another friend who I had known from advertising showed me how to do 
pace-ups and layouts and actually did the ordering of type for me. So that I had now had two book jackets. So this was the beginning of a portfolio to add to, to my portfolio of etchings and watercolors. I, I guess my strange kind of, and interesting, I suppose, adventures with, <laughs> with my, my calling and making appointments. I was, it was suggested by, I don't know who, to see the publisher of what was then Women's Wear Daily, mm -hmm. W, who was very nice and said, maybe I should consider doing fashion drawings. And I said, I really wasn't that interested in that. But then he suggested that I see Andy Warhol, who was doing shoes at that time. Those wonderful shoe drawings. Yeah. And I called and was able to see Andy Warhol. I can remember sitting across the desk from him, but I have no memory of anything he said. So, I, and he may have given me some other names of people to see, I, I don't recall. I also saw Peter Max, I, who I remember a little bit more of, but I mean, he, he asked if he could hold on to my portfolio and I said no at that point, so. Nothing much came of that. But the book jacket sort of developed into probably my favorite period of working. I, I guess, went to Harper and Row, where I met an art director whose name was Margot Hare, who later became an illustrator and painter eventually. But she was one of the few art directors who said, I will give you work and did. So many of them said, I will give you work, but you never heard from them again. But she called me within two or three weeks and I started doing covers for paperbacks uh, for her that were a range of, they could be books on history, books on uh, uh, philosophy, all sorts of things. And there were some classics. I began to do some classics for her as well. And she moved on to Doubleday, where I began to do a lot of work for her for mysteries, science fiction. And those were the most fun because I got to read the books in galley form mostly. And there were one or two authors who would begin to ask for me. L.P. Davies was one of them. I did a lot of work for Margot, and I also continued to work for Harper and Row. She had passed her job on to someone else who continued to hire me, and I did some classics for her as well. But the Doubleday things, I worked for other art directors at Doubleday doing other books. Most of the mystery and science fiction books I did I was responsible for the layouts, pace-ups, mechanicals, choosing the type. And I, I didn't always like doing that, but I got to be fairly decent at it. And often would do hand lettering rather than ordering type. I worked for other publishers after that, doing young adult books. Mm -hmm. And also Margot, Hare was the first one to give me a children's book. So 
that's about it. How did you approach f figuring out what you were going to paint for a, a cover? I, I would always read the book first mm -hmm. so that whatever I chose, no one could say to me, that's not in the book. So occasionally I would get an art director who would say, we would want this or we want that. But mostly it was up to me to choose. And, and I would just choose something that I felt was a lead or something that was a curiosity, something that would want, someone would want to look into this book for. I also felt it had to have a graphic kind of feel to it, sort of a postery feel to it. I don't really know exactly what my influences were. I think it may have been from earlier book covers done in the 1920s and 30s, but also they were three color, so there'd be a black plate and a two color plate where I could combine the two colors to make a third color. So that goes back to my early childhood introduction to the Dick and Jane books, which was a pain in the neck to have to cut those things so that you do overlays. But I kind of enjoyed it. And, and also finding or coming up with an idea was part of the solving the problem. It was like solving the mystery, finding something that I would be happy with visually and maybe psychologically and hope that a reader would find the same interest. It was also a strange time where I think that art directors or maybe even editors were tired of the earlier concepts of what book jackets should look like and they were willing to take chances and so I got a chance to experiment with a lot of the designs that I did. It was fun to me. I mean solving this, solving this problem, reading the book, trying to get into the head of the author and it, it made it worthwhile. I was never paid that much for them but I think looking back they were the most fun to do, even more than the children's books. And how did you approach, how was approaching a children's book project different? It wasn't really. I mean, uh, there were certain sort of, I don't know if you could call them rules about pacing, you know, going through the story. The picture books were simpler because you could get an idea for each page from the, you know, just from visualizing the text. I, I ran into a problem with the author on the very first book, which was done for Margot Hare. It was called Stone Man, Stone House. I don't know if you've seen it out of print for a lifetime now. <laughs> but it, it was a, a fantasy about a child, a lonely child, I guess, who picks up a stone and the stone becomes a little man in the child's imagination. And one of the stipulations what was that I couldn't show the, so the sex of the child. It couldn't be a boy or a girl. It had to be vague enough so a boy or a girl could enjoy it and identif identify with it. So that was all right. I did it all in, with either silhouettes or just showing a profile or hands or feet. The problem was with the stone man when the author saw my initial sketches where I had turned the stone into a sort of a man-like creature. 
she just went crazy and said, it should look like a stone, shouldn't look like a man. And I, I said, I don't know what she's talking about. I mean, she may not realize it visually. You can't do this. And we finally compromised, thanks to Margot, by making the man more stone-like. But I think the author was I'm never happy with it. In fact, several years later, I, I was asked by UNICEF, I think it was, if they could use it as a Christmas card. It was a just a little silhouette of the child sitting on a hill with some daisies. And I wasn't being paid. It was just, just something that they could use so they could make some money for UNICEF. And I think a year or two later, the author discovered it and again went crazy thinking that I had been paid and she was not. And I never asked her for permission. So it was a little bit of a problem for Doubleday. But they got over it when they said he wasn't paid. It was just a, you know, a donation. And they said to me, if you do something like this again, check with us first. But I, I did okay with that book. When you say drew a little child or anything, would you draw from, would you need to draw from life? Or could, was it all sort of in your imagination? Uh, it would be a mix. It would be a mix of, of looking for reference. In fact, everything I did was always looking for reference first. It was part of the ceremonial thing. I would look through every book and every magazine I had, mm -hmm. just sort of making things cook in my head and maybe doing little idea sketches. I do have books of children reference. I have books of anatomy <laughs> reference as well. And uh, occasionally I would get the child of a friend to pose for me which I did for, I don't know if you've seen, I did a poster for, it, it's, it's a small African-American child with a paintbrush in her hand. And this was my goddaughter who was painfully posed for me. But she also posed for me for later on for one of the children's books that I did. So it was a mix of whatever, but a, a lot of it was through my imagination or imagination working from some literal reference. <laughs> I also have a toy collection, or I had. I just got rid of, I just gave away 20 pounds of dolls and toys. Did you always just do watercolor or was it a mix of materials? Pretty much, I, I prefer watercolor. I mean, the other uh, media is, is mostly pen and ink or pencil, pen and ink line. I, I've done some children's books in, in pen and ink, mostly spot drawings, uh, chapter heads. And I, I, I like pen and ink. A, a, lot, a lot of the magazine work I did, uh, spots for New York Magazine or uh, were done in pen and ink as well, uh, or pen and ink and water, or pencil and watercolor, maybe one color in grays. Uh, yeah, watercolor. I, I did some oil and some, never really acrylic, but uh, gouache when I was a student and I just didn't have enough. I just enjoy watercolor. I enjoy the challenge. It's not difficult for me. Uh, I, I taught actually for, I think, eight or 10 years. When I moved here, I taught watercolor to seniors 
and they would always, oh, it's so hard. And, and I'd say, it's just water and paint. And you just dip your brush into the water, dip it into the paint, and then you just do whatever comes out. And that was always my, my way of doing it. So I, I, it's just something that I know how to do. As I said, I don't find it difficult. It's not that hard to correct a mistake as people think. So it's just my preferred way of working. It also is quicker. You don't have to wait for it to dry. Well, actually you do it. You could use a hairdryer. When I was a student, one of the early classes that I took the first year was a color class. And after that color class, I didn't use color for five years, I think. Uh, we had to do Munsell charts. I don't know if you know what they are. I don't even know if they're used anymore, but they're little, you get these little squares of color and you have to paste them up. And there are the cool colors and the warm colors and the, all of that stuff, color theory. And one day I just, I had something to do in color and I realized you just put one color next to another it either works or it doesn't work. And so I just forget about color theory and I just do what looks good to me. And I think I eventually became a colorist. I've seen some of the pen and ink stuff in magazines, but the ones that have really attracted my attention are like, you know, the full page illustration to go along with a story in a magazine. The sort of the watercolor makes it super luminous, you know, really jumps off of the page. Well, there's a thing about layering watercolors that, that's more time consuming because you have to wait for each layer to dry before you put another layer on top of it so that you get, if you put one color on top of another, uh, you get this, you can see both colors, but, it, but it's, it's a third color and it makes it more luminous. It's, it's like a stained glass window almost. Mm -hmm. So I, I, that's one of the things that I love about watercolor. I mean, you can let it flow and be very free with it, but then if you layer it, which takes more time and a little bit more care, uh, because you can flow into an area that you don't want it to, but you can pick up color as well. You can pick it up a little bit depending on which color it is. Some colors die into the page, into the paper uh, very quickly. And I know you were associated with Pushpin. They represented me, yes, yeah. And that came about, was it 1970? I was only with them for three years. I began working for New York Magazine because I had a friend who worked there and he said, bring your portfolio up. And, and so I did. And I began to do spots and occasionally a bigger illustration for, I guess it was Milton still with, was with New York Magazine. And Pushpin was in the same building on the same floor. I can't remember who it was there who said, bring your portfolio up for us to look at. It may have been Seymour. I don't really remember now. And I brought it up and I left it and two or three weeks went by and I hadn't heard from them 
So I called and I said, can I come and pick up? And the person I spoke to said, oh, oh, we've been meaning to get in touch with you. I said, well, I hadn't heard from anybody. And she said, well, we're putting your name on the, on the uh, Bushman graphic as one of the artists. <laughs> so they were very casual about that sort of thing. But it was a really great association. I mean, I, I really enjoyed working with them. Uh, Milton had left by then. I mean, he was still with New York Magazine. But uh, it was a great experience doing the graphic. The pushpin graphic was wonderful. Once every two months, I guess it was, or one month. I, I think they changed it for a while where they would do a theme and uh, we would get a chance to choose uh, some aspect of that theme to illustrate. So it could be lovers was one where I did Lita and the Swan. So that, that worked very well for me. I think it, it also, well, it worked well and it didn't work so well because later on I learned that people didn't hire me because they thought I would be too expensive. But I, I stayed with them till I think it was 73. And many of the other artists had already left. It was really not a good time. They were, they were I don't know, the work that I was, I was not getting a lot of work. There, there was, I, I think they were branching off into products and chocolates and things like that. And I very reluctantly decided to leave and I went with Vicki Morgan who was a rep at that time. And I worked for her for a couple of years and I was beginning to get burnt out. I think the last, I did some magazine work for her and I did some posters, I guess. So I did, I, I think I did the Masterpiece Theater posters for Pushpin. I may have done one with Vicky, I can't remember now. But I think the last job I did for Vicky was Cabbage Patch Dolls. And it was a big job, starting with silhouettes of Cabbage Patch Dolls, dancing, playing, swimming. And I thought, oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> and they sent me a couple of Cabbage Patch Dolls. It was a time where people were lining up at stores waiting for them. And I started doing these drawings and it became more and more difficult as they put all of these specifications mm. as how, how far an arm could be extended overhead, how far a leg could go up. And it was really crazy making. <laughs> but I managed to do, I don't know how many of them. And it was supposed to go into full color illustrations, but it never got to that. But it was a big job. It took, I don't know, almost a year where I was not getting any other work. And at that point, I, I said, I can't do this anymore. So uh, I, I had a chance to stay on with Vicky if I did American Showcase or one of those magazine, uh, uh, one of those promotional books. And I said, no, I, I don't want to do it. I, I, I think it's time for me to leave. I think I'd like to do children's books for a while. And so I left Vicky and I actually left New York. I kept an apartment, 
but I moved back upstate to where my parents were living. And I did a few children's books there and decided to stay. So, <laughs> which was not a great work decision, but I stayed, did some children's books, did whatever work came in, didn't do any promotion. I stayed there for a long time. I, I had bought the house next to my parents' house and had it torn down <laughs> so that there was a bigger yard with a brook behind. And uh, when my parents died, I stayed on and then decided that it was time to leave the East Coast. And uh, 26 years ago, I came to San Francisco, which was also not a great work decision. <laughs> I had a choice of two reps when I moved here. And I took the one that said he could pay half of my promotion but that he wasn't very aggressive. The other one was more aggressive, but couldn't pay for half of my <laughs> promotion. So I didn't choose him. And it turned out that he was less, that the one I chose was even less aggressive than I was. Yeah. So after a year, uh, we just decided to quit. And I had fallen into this work that was completely out of my experience. <laughs> It was doing a series of paintings that were uh, commissioned for companies that were going into their IPOs. And so as a parting celebration, there would be a, a painting that would include anywhere from three to 20 of these people that were not quite caricatures, but somewhat portraits in some situation that would be important to them. The first one was the yellow brick road. So it had characters from the yellow brick road. <laughs> and I did that and was it was fun to do, but it would be like last minute, they would send these bad photographs of people that I would have to adapt into some sort of likeness. And, but the situation was kind of fun and they paid very, very well. And they accepted anything I did. If there were changes, they paid extra for it. And this lasted, oh, this was Montgomery Securities was the firm I was working for. And I was working for a friend who had a, who worked for a frame shop and they were doing the frames. So the original, would go to the CEO and the other people in the painting would be getting a photograph of the, of the painting of the original. The photographer was a friend of mine, which is how I got the job. And that lasted for five or six years, I think. And by then I was doing some more children's work. Actually, when, when I did, before I moved to California, uh, I had done some more children's books for Walker Books in England. I did, I don't know how many books for them, five. Well, I did a series of five baby kitten books. And then I think I did two or three other books, full color books. So that was done while I was living out in the country. But I didn't do another children's book until 15 years ago when I did two books for 
what is now called Arborddale books. It had it was called something else before that. And those books are still in print. One of them has done very well. The other one is sort of a Christmas book, so that's still making up some of its initial payment. But the books that I did for Walker Books, the children, the, the baby books, did very well. They were co-published with Doubleday and with a French publisher and a Dutch publisher. So they did very well. I don't know that there's, I'm sure they're, they're not still around. As far as working, I don't need to anymore. And I stopped, I think the last commission I did was in 2013. And it was out of the blue, a mural design for American Apparel in Brooklyn for their exterior wall, which was fun to do. And they were, they were pretty good about, because uh, I said, I will not take it unless you just let me do whatever I want. And they said, sure, okay. And so there really was no problem. They didn't pay a whole lot, but they said, we have a lease for 15 years, so it should be up for a long time. But they went bankrupt and <laughs> the building now is uh, pale gray. But that was the last commission I took. Since then, I've, I've done my own work. I've, done, I've been in group shows and just enjoying I, I loved doing illustration. I really loved doing the work. I did not like looking for it. Mm-hmm. I did not like the interference very often, which would come not so much from art, not always from art directors, but from people who were completely uninvolved, people who were above the art director or even uh, there was one editor that I worked for who would show the sketches to her admin or secretary for approval before she would make an approval. And then there were the editors who would take an art class and they would become sort of experts and start making criticisms or changes. So those were the things. That, I mean, there I had very good art directors, wonderful art directors, but a few that were not so good. Oh, I forgot to tell you, one of my first jobs was for NBC for TV Guide. And I did the entire fall lineup for that year. And now I can't remember what it was. It was, wasn't Wagon Train. It was, I can't remember now. It was not a good experience. Actually, the, the one part of it was okay because the art director was really nice, but... I thought, oh, you know, I could do this with like 80 portraits, I think. And I realized that it would take me so much time because they would be in situations and I had to get a Lucy eventually, you know, a Lacey Lucy, an enlarging, reducing machine, which I didn't like doing, but there was no way I could complete this job without doing this. And they were fairly realistic. That part of the job, got done, and then there was another part of the job for another art director where they would be in black and white Morris spots. And that was a bad experience because the art director asked me for a kickback. Mm. And that never happened to me before and never happened to me afterwards. And I, I asked one of the, the 
Alex Godfried, who was then the head art, uh, art director, design director at Double Bag. And he said, it sometimes happens, but don't do it. And so I refused. And so that art director took my name off the drawings. But that was early on. I never had another job like that. Like obviously the, you know, the 1960s are, you know, particularly memorable in history for you know, being such a time of change. What was it, what was your life like sort of outside of the work? Oh, it was the best time. It was really the best time. I, I had good friends. I mean, most of them were from Pratt. Nancy Grossman, Pat Steer. I knew them from Pratt and we were friends. I mean, I'm still in touch, especially with Nancy, occasionally with Pat. But then there were the people that I began to know when I was teaching at Pratt. And uh, uh, Donna and Michael Massey, Kelter Massey, I don't know if you knew that. They, they had a, that probably was too long ago too. They had a shop in the village. Kelter Massey was uh, uh, folk art and quilts, antique quilts. But before that, Michael had had several shops in, in, in the city in the first in the village and then in the thirties. Uh, and he had, I guess, sort of trendy stuff at the time that was slightly antique mm. Mickey Mouse stuff. Uh, and it was also Kenny Nitel and Fandango, which was uptown. And they were friends and Suzanne from Secondhand Rose, mm. uh, close friend. And uh, I would do merching with them. Uh, we would go out looking for stuff and uh, we'd do drawings for them. I went to England the first time with Michael and Donna, his wife, Donna, who had been my friend originally from Pratt, mm -hmm. uh, where we went to see Zandra Rhodes, friend of uh, people at Pratt. Mm -hmm. I spent two weeks there. Uh, so it was an exciting time. Uh, Suzanne at Secondhand Rose, she had quite a following. George Siegel, not the artist, but the actor. <laughs> so it would occasionally be dinner with people like that. It was an exciting time. Art-wise, you know, things were happening. I, I never really hung out with the illustration crowd. I, I was not a member of the uh, Society of Illustrators. Or I would occasionally be in shows, but only because they were submitted either by the art director I'd worked for or Pushpin. So I, I was not part of that, that scene. But the 60s and early 70s, the very early 70s until things began to get sort of dark in the in the 70s and there was still I, I would go back and forth to England uh, to London because I, I had friends there and I was doing work for Walker Books so sometimes I would do books I would start working on a book there uh, I went to a book fair in Bologna with them one year uh, <laughs> The art director there was a friend of mine who I knew, who actually had been a close friend of Margot Hare, the art director I worked for, Doubleday and McMillan. 
So uh, she and her husband and I were close friends and I would stay with them occasionally and uh, still visiting Sandra. So as I said, it was, it was a good time. It was only the 80s that New York, I kept my apartment until 1984, I think. I had a, this was a, I had graduated from East 7th Street to West 10th Street uh, to an apartment that I inherited from Margot Hare. It was on West 10th between uh, West 4th and Bleecker. Mm. Yeah. It was a great apartment. It was probably the best apartment I had in my time in the city, though it was a five floor walk up. It was still a really good size one bedroom, almost eat in size kitchen. But I, and I held on to that. A friend of mine, I let a friend of mine use it. And I ended up being taken advantage of there. <laughs> so I finally gave it up in 1984 and started living in the country at that point. And you said you've been in San Francisco for 26 years? 26 years, yeah. yeah. And I moved here. I had to get away from the brutal winters, mm-hmm. shoveling snow, shoveling snow off the roof, a path for the dog, <laughs> and the hot, humid summers. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to come back to New York City I wanted something that was more cosmopolitan, but still more livable. And I have a niece and her family who live here. And so I decided to move here and I have no regrets. I'm very happy to be here. As I, the the last, the eighties in New York, I, I found really oppressive and it just seemed a dark time. I, I was afraid. I mean, I, I had never before been afraid in walking in the city or, or living in the city. In fact, when I lived on 7th Street, I interrupted a robbery on the floor above me <laughs> while I was working on a, a job for New York Magazine. <laughs> but suddenly I felt in danger being out in the street when it got dark or even in the daylight, there was a grayness about it. So that was why in, in 84, I thought I'm giving up the apartment now, which was a great, as I said, a great apartment. And my rent when I left was $400 a month. Makes sense. <laughs> even from, you know, my parents' stories from the early eighties. Yeah, it definitely seems late seventies, early eighties were frightening time for them too in the city. I, I would go back to visit. I, as I still had friends there, I would visit them. And I would come, come in to see foreign films or go for music, go for concerts. But yeah, moving to the country was a, a, a good decision. Uh, and uh, I, I moved by then. My parents were living in a very tiny town where uh, my sister had been living with her family, but uh, she died in, I guess, 1974, which was another reason that I moved back up there to sort of look after my parents. 
the town was sort of crumbling. It was a, just a one, one main street. And suddenly uh, it was discovered by New York people and they began moving up. In fact, Suzanne from Secondhand Rose, Suzanne and Jeffrey bought a big piece of property up there. So I had a community. Which town was that? Mountaindale, which has made another resurgence. Yeah, I, I have a friend who just got a place there. So yeah. Really? <laughs> Yeah, Mountaindale has gone through several resurgences and then fallen down again. Actually, my my goddaughter now owns my house. I mean, she was not the buyer for me. I mean, there was one buyer in between, but she bought it, I guess, it's four years ago now. That's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and her parents are my best friends still. They live right in the middle of town. Going back to illustration, obviously the sort of, I guess the industry for illustration has dramatically changed over the years. Like it was, if you look at old magazines, it's everywhere, but it's not, did you, was this something you could sort of feel the fact that illustration was being less used over the years? Uh, I think so. I think it was being used less for uh, during those years. Uh, it, it was something that I, I didn't really worry about. I didn't think that it was going, to, I mean, it, it sort of coincided with my feeling I didn't want to do it for a while. But I remember going back even further when photography was the thing and they said, oh, illustration is dead. It's just going to be photography for photography from now on. But then they kind of exist, they coexisted. And uh, it was a time that every, so I, I, I felt that, well, you know, maybe illustration will be all digitized, all computerized now, but that's not going to be forever. But yeah, I, I think it was harder. There was a time in the 90s when I, I kind of looked for work. I even looked for a rep, I think, at that point. I couldn't find one in New York. I mean, I, I, stayed, I stayed close to Vicki Morgan. In fact, even when I moved here, I was in contact with her. Not about work, but just as a friend. If I would go back to New York, I would visit her. And, and she introduced me to Vivian Flesher, who lives in San Francisco. I was supposed to get in touch with Vivian, but uh, it's not easy for me to do that kind of thing. <laughs> and eventually Vivian got in touch with me. And uh, so, you know, we would be with her now husband, Ward uh, Shoemaker, who was an illustrator designer, but is now more a painter or artist. <laughs> So I see them, well, now I, I see them more often at shows that either one of them is uh, having an opening. Mm. But that came from Vicki. And, and, you know, I, it was a long time that I stayed in touch with her. Uh, I occasionally would uh, visit Milton Glazer when I went back, had lunch with him a couple of times. Uh, I didn't keep up with Seymour. No, I don't know why. 
I think it was just easier to be with Milton. Although I, I, I like Seymour very much. And here, I think I may go one or two illustrators. The only illustrator that I stayed close with who I didn't really meet until I was living in Mountaindale was Diana Bryan. She died maybe 15 years ago. She did silhouettes, but sort of spiky. Uh, she taught at Parsons as well for a while. I think she got Barbara Nesson her job there originally. Barbara has been a sort of friend. I mean, I'm not in touch with her now, except occasionally on Instagram. You know, looking back over your career, what, you know, were some of the, I guess, the greatest struggles of your career and some of the greatest joys? I think the greatest joys were the book jackets. Those book jackets, which didn't really seem to have much meaning to anybody else. I mean, they, they got a little bit of attention. Actually, it was like 10 or 12 years ago, they got a lot of attention. And I think mostly because of Flickr, because I started posting them on Flickr. And they were picked up with a few blogs. So I had an interview with the science fiction, now I can't remember his, his name. He has a science fiction book blog. So I, I, I had a lot of attention because of, of Flickr, I think, of posting those, those things. So I, I really enjoyed those. I, I think going back and forth to London with the children's books was a great joy as well. Struggles, I think those, those late 80s and early 90s, I think, or eight mostly the late 80s were the struggling times where I really didn't want to work, but I needed to get work. And I was just sort of canceled at the time. And I don't know if it had anything to do with my work or just the time. And I, I did a series of jobs at that time, also thanks to Margot Hare, who had was no longer an art director, she was a painter, but she had a job doing designs for marquetry and she no longer wanted to do it. And so she suggested that I might be interested. Also, their offices were in Austin. She said, I think they're Moonies, do you mind? And I said, I don't care. And so I went and I, and I worked for them for about three years doing uh, little marquetry plaque designs and frames designs, which I didn't get credit for. They were all credited to the guy who was the designer, mm. who was very nice. But and I, I did a lot of work for them, and it was it was the only difficult part of it was that you could only have so many pieces and where they hit each other because at that point it was not uh, computerized, so uh, their machinery wasn't computerized. So that was the difficult part of it, but they were kind of fun. I mean, they would give me a project of design. And I would do it and then I would drive up to Ossining and uh, the guy who was in charge was really nice. So 
I, it, it was not a terrible thing to do. I mean, it's not anything that I would keep a portfolio. In fact, I have a folder full of the designs, <laughs> full of tracings of you know what my finishes was going to be. And I think I have to throw these away. But I did work hard on them and, and it's hard for me to, to get rid of them. But that, that was, so that was a struggle time, but not an unhappy time because I did have good friends in, in Mountaindale and sometimes one of them would drive up to Ossining with me. And I was treated well by the people, not paid that extraordinarily well. And when I moved here, there was the possibility of working for them long distance, but that never happened. Mm. I know that you wrote some of their children's books, right? The, uh, the kitten books, yes. Did you have cats? Because your cat drawings look like someone done, your cat you know, paintings look like they're done by somebody who really knows and loves cats, you've <laughs> always had them? I've always had, actually I moved here with an Akita, 75 wow. Akita dog and two cats from a 13 room house to a small three bedroom, a one bedroom, uh, apartment in San Francisco. <laughs> the dog and the cats mostly ignored each other. They didn't really. But they all died within six months of each other. And mm -hmm. at that point, I said, no more. No more. And they were all around 11 years old. Uh, but I, I had a friend uh, who was a cat rescue. And she talked me into another cat who I had for 10 years. And the last three years were just, she was ill mm. just for three years of having to take care of this cat. So after the vet finally said, okay, it's time, I said, no more. And so far, I've been able to resist. It's difficult, but no more. I love your drawings of cats. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so you you wrote the the kitten ones. Yeah, it actually came about. They were done for Walker Books, and uh, the art director Amelia Edwards, who was a friend who I knew from Margot Hare. She came up with the idea. The first one was one that we didn't even end up doing. I still have the sketches for it. It was a cat in a bag. Well, maybe there was, yes, it's, it, it is in there. It, it, there is one where there are sounds that are rips and things. She said, why don't you just do it? Just come up with five ideas and work them into. So uh, there, there are five baby books that are you know, the hardcover. They, they did very well. I mean, th those are the ones that were published in uh, French and Dutch and uh, by Doubleday. The only problem I had was with the French. They were concerned about the sharp teeth and claws. So I had to round them off slightly. Uh -huh. What, like, what scale do you do the things at? Because obviously some are poster size and some are book size, so. I don't work very large. Mm. I mean, my drawing table is, well, it's, I would show it to you, but it's covered with stuff at the moment. <laughs> but it's, 
like that big. Mm. So uh, I, I, a couple of years ago, I did a painting for my niece, which is bigger than my drawing table. So I had to work sort of off the edge. But uh, mostly I prefer to work same size. Uh, the posters were, I'm not sure if they were half size. The first poster I did was for Rebecca, which is one of my favorite. That one was uh, turned into a subway shelter poster. So it was gigantic. And it was just, I think it was the last year they were doing those that size. And I had one, which I gave to my nephew. I don't know if it still exists anywhere. I recently, well, not that recently, discovered I threw away, I don't know how many Masterpiece Theater posters. I had them in a roll and I couldn't get them out. They were rolled so tightly. And I just one day took them and just took the whole roll and put it in the recycling bin. Oh. Uh, it's, it's very difficult for me to get rid of my originals. I donated my originals to the Norman Rockwell Museum. And they, they now have about 300 pieces, but that's barely scraping the barrel. I mean, 300 pieces also include preliminary sketches, uh, you know, tracings. So I still, and it's been going on two years since I've sent them anything. So <laughs> I have more to go, but it's a kind of overwhelming because it means remembering when they were done, what, who they were done for. So I, I just, every once in a while I take out a bunch and I put them in an archival box and then it gets me too much to think about. But I, I was doing pretty well for two years sending out, uh, I think I were three or four packages, but I, I contacted them because I, I, I didn't know what to do with my work. My, my family can just take this much or that much and they're, you know, it's more than they can deal with. And I was concerned about what, what they will do with it once I'm gone when I'm dead, you know, they can't ask me. And well, something I haven't touched on was that I had a partner who died nine years ago mm. and he was an artist and now we're finding it difficult to find a place for his work. I mean, he was uh, more of a real, he was a performance artist. He also did sculpture and painting and collage and calligraphy. So there's all this stuff that we've been trying to deal with and you know what to do with it. And then I thought, what am I gonna do with my work? <laughs> and I don't remember, I, I think maybe I was looking at the Norman Rockwell site and I noticed that uh, there were some people that I knew from Pushpin. And I thought, well, let me just send an email. And so I sent an email and I said, uh, 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with my work, but I'm wondering, you know, I was an illustrator and I was with Pushpin, if you would be interested in it. And I immediately got, a, got something back saying, we, we know your work, we would like it. So that was a really good feeling. <laughs> so unfortunately, I'm not being as good about sending it off as I should be. I mean, I think even starting the process is an amazing, you know, first of all, it's an amazing gift for them. It's an amazing gift for your family to started it. Um, and I'm really glad that it's going to be archived somewhere where it'll be taken care of and will probably be shown, you know. Eventually, I suppose. I mean, I, I, I just wanted to make sure that because a, a lot of it is not done on archival paper. I mean, it was, you know, who knew about archival paper 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So some pieces are turning yellow already. And some pieces had were glued down with rubber cement, which is turning them. So a lot of the book jacket stuff, you know, is, is turning already, or is still stuck mm -hmm. to this backing board. So it's a good place for yeah. whatever yeah. they do or not do with it. <laughs> and it's Norman Rockwell. <laughs> it's a great museum. If you don't mind me asking, what was your partner's name? Um, uh, Bill Morrison. I probably wouldn't. No, I mean, he was pretty much San Francisco or, or California. I mean, he did have a flurry of, uh, of interest in the 70s, I guess. He had a Fulbright to Japan. So, you know, his work eventually will find a place for it. I mean, he he had a wife who was a friend of mine. So, um, you know, we've been working. Actually, since COVID, we haven't been doing much. Put a damper on a lot of things. Do you still draw and for your, just for yourself? Or? Yeah, I, I do still draw and not as much as I should. I was doing a lot of life drawing. I have probably a hundred sketchbooks at least of life drawings and I'm not quite sure. I don't know how many Norman Rockwell will be interested in. Uh, Leslie Lohman might be interested. They do have some of my stuff. And a few years ago when I, I was in contact with uh, someone from there who, who was here in San Francisco, and, said, and he said they might be interested, but I don't think he's any longer part of Leslie Moment. I did a, a couple of shows with them probably 12 or 15 years ago, or a couple of pieces. And uh, I did some work under another name, actually. It was Bill and I did this series of things. I One of the I have a friend who lives here who has commissioned me through the years to do drawings for him. And uh, he commissioned a series uh, that was uh, tasteful nude males in, in uh, 
there's a clown, uh, there's a gypsy, uh, this whole series. It's, and his idea was that uh, he would buy the originals, but I should be able to make prints mm. to, to sell, which was something I was not really interested in doing. But I did these and Bill and I brought them to Leslie Lohman, brought the prints to Leslie Lohman, not telling them that I was the artist. Actually, they were done under another name, Marco Finn. Yeah, I think there's still, there's still a site online. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Leslie Lohman liked them because they said they were tasteful. They were uh, pencil drawings with watercolor. So we, we left them a set of prints. They had someone who was interested in buying them, but no, when they found out that they were digital prints. They were really excellent. We worked with a printer uh, so that the prints look exactly like the originals, that you can really not tell the difference. But uh, it discouraged a sale of them. But, and, and I think, I had two of the pieces in a show that Leslie Lohman did. Uh, I can't remember what the name of the show was. Uh, and this goes back at least 15 years ago. And I, I think at that point I said, I will do a set of originals based on the Zodiac. So I did the 12 Zodiac signs and uh, brought the prints to Leslie Lohman. And, they liked them too, they took them as well. He decided on these, on doing these prints, really unhappy with mm -hmm. digitally. And, and we worked with the printer to, to produce these things. And so they are, as I said, they look like the originals. And he, I can't remember how many, but he decided that there would be 200, uh, of the Zodiac, there were less of the, uh, of the other prints. And I, I thought that the, it was too big, um, but I think he only had like 25 or 30 sets done of, of the Zodiacs and maybe less of the Masquerade series. And uh, we took them to art shows and didn't have much luck selling them. And he also did this, and we had this whole fictitious artist, and actually began with an artist and his brother, two artists, because I oh, I was working for Arbordale doing the children's books, and they're in South Carol South Carolina, mm. and I was afraid they would be not happy having these, these nudes, even though there's nothing pornographic about them. So that was the reason for the fictitious name. Uh, but they, they didn't sell well, but eventually, you know, we were going to do more. But then Bill got lung cancer. And that was the end of it. It was six months, I think, before he died. And that was the end of, you know, no more prints. So we've been giving them away. 
we gave them away for auctions, you know, sets and giving them for friends. I think there's maybe still two or three or four sets left. But uh, I donated the originals of the Zodiac to Leslie Longman. So they have those as well as the set of prints of each set of each Zodiac. But so far I'm not listed as one of their artists. So before they get, I do have three illustrations I did for Blue Boy magazine, which I may give them, but I'm not sure about yet. But it depends on if they want my, my sketchbooks. Male and female, mostly female. If they're happy to have them, then they can have them. I'll have to see if I can find pictures of those. That's what, they sound amazing, especially the Zodiac. Uh, I, I, I think I had or have so many styles that I think it may have been difficult for potential jobs because they couldn't quite figure out what I would come up with. And I always felt that the style would be dictated by the job, mm -hmm. that whatever I felt about it. So I don't know, I mean, how consistent my output has been as far as you could say, oh, that's a shonga. Although the book jackets, I, years, a few years after I stopped, I stopped working for them when I started with Pushpin. And I think it was, <laughs> I think Phyllis Flood put a, put a damper on that when she said, when they wanted to hire me for something and she felt they were not giving me enough money. Mm. And she said uh, that she felt I should be getting as much money as Seymour or, uh, was getting. And she said, you wouldn't want, or something like, uh, you wouldn't want to be upsetting pushpin, would you? <laughs> so so I, I think that was the end, which was fine. I mean, I, I don't remember making much more than maybe five or $600 for a book jacket for them at that time. And that was maybe top, but they were good to do. Yeah, I found one of those, what, uh, one blog, it didn't have an interview, but it had a lot of the Doubleday covers on it. And yeah, they're wonderful. I, you know, I as a person who loves book covers and who has bought many, many books over the years because of the covers, oh, yeah. I, you know, they're, they're really wonderful. Some of them are super trippy and there's like, you know, all, like really intriguing. They make you want to pick up the book, which is the point, right? I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I, it 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 does strike me funny though now that that uh, you know I didn't think of them as being trippy at the time. I, you know, I I really have not done a lot of drugs, especially psychedelic drugs. <laughs> I haven't done it all. I have enough trouble keeping up with reality as it is. <laughs> okay. I I think uh, I, I was there, there was a magazine that I was. Uh, influenced by in in the seventies, maybe they were in a, called Twen or T W E N. The art director there, German or Swiss name I've forgotten now, who also did I think the Yellow Submarine. 
the, the illustrations for that magazine, I, I don't know what they influenced me, but I wanted them to influence me. <laughs> when when I, I first moved here, there was a magazine being put out just around the corner from me. Now I've lost the name. Anyway, they had a dog and I, I would meet them in the dog park and uh, I brought my portfolio to see them and they said, well, we don't use illustration, but we would use you and you should be doing more work. <laughs> uh, and they gave me all this advice for promotion. I never did it. I've not been really good about promoting myself, which is, uh, is not a good thing for a professional illustrator. And now even without, you know, being good at it, you've had a wonderful, varied, interesting career. It surprises me now. I mean, especially when I'm looking through the work for sorting it, uh, how much work I did. I mean, I wasn't even aware of how much work I was getting done. There was a time that when I was working for New York Magazine and the Times, New York Times, I was doing things for the editorial page or the book section. And it really wasn't that often about people would say, oh, we see your work all the time, but it wasn't there all the time. <laughs> but enough, I guess, so that people would notice it. Yeah, I mean, I even found like little illustrations in Vogue, hairbrushes and things, you know? <laughs> I'm surprised you found those. I work for Vogue and I think Bizarre too, doing spots and they always promised me that I would get to do a better drawing or a bigger drawing for a spread, fashion spread or something. And it never happened because I think finally once I confronted the art director and I can't remember who said, well, we're committed to whoever it was at the time. But I think once, once instead of paying me more money, they, they let me hang around when Varushka came in. <laughs> so I got to meet Varushka for two seconds. <laughs> I, you know, I usually end by asking, you know, what, you know, someone's most proud of. Is it the Doubleday books or is it just, you know, it could be anything. I, I think the Doubleday books, maybe the Masterpiece Theater pieces, although they, they turned out to be more realistic. I mean, I, I, I think my favorite of the, the, masterpiece uh, ones are Portrait of a Marriage. Oh, the, the pushpin graphic, graphic pieces. I think those are really my favorites. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You've been very easy to talk to, to speak to. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Manny Shanga. On the website, I've put together slideshows of his illustrations and book covers along with a short bio. I have many wonderful conversations coming up with artists, dancers, and more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com.